The Productive Woman, Episode 346. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Productive Woman. My name is Laura McClellan and this is a podcast about productivity for busy women. My goal is to help you find the tools and encouragement you need to manage your time, life, stress, and stuff so you can accomplish the things you care about most and make a life that matters. Thank you so much for joining me. I am so glad you're here. In this episode, I'm excited to share with you my conversation with auctioneer and author Lydia Finette as part of our new for 2021 Productive Living series. You'll find more information about Lydia along with links to resources she recommends and the various ways you can connect with her online, all in the show notes for this episode, which you will find at theproductivewoman.com slash 346. Now let's get right into my conversation with Lydia. Hi there. I wanted to pop in before the interview starts to let you know that when we were editing this episode, we discovered some issues with the guest's audio that spanned the first few minutes of the interview. Uh, I was really disappointed, but after thinking about it for a while, I decided the interview is too important to just trash it and re-recording wasn't an option. So we decided to keep it. So I apologize up front for the faulty audio in the first few minutes, but it does get better. And I hope you will stick with me so you can hear the great insights that Lydia offers in the conversation I have with her. Thank you so much for your patience. And now let's get into the conversation with Lydia. I am so pleased to introduce to the Productive Woman listeners, Lydia Finette. Lydia is Global Managing Director, Strategic Partnerships, and Lead Benefit Auctioneer at Christie's Auction House. She's led auctions for more than 600 organizations and raised over half a billion dollars for nonprofits globally. She's been named as one of New York's most influential women by Gotham Magazine and has been featured in many other publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes and Cranes, and others. Her widely acclaimed book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, was published by Simon & Schuster and was optioned for TV or film by New Form Entertainment. Lydia is also a wife and a mom who lives in New York City with her family, and I have really been looking forward to talking with her about how leadership skills fit into our goal of making a life that matters. So welcome, Lydia. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm thrilled that you could join me today. Uh, I've kind of given your your formal bio or formal introduction to you. Maybe we can start by you telling us a little bit more about who you are, where you are, what you do, whatever you think would be interesting or useful for us to know about you as we get into this conversation. Absolutely. Well, I live in New York City, where I've lived for the past 20 years of my life. I left college and moved straight to New York because... While I was in college, I secured an internship at Chrissy's Auction House. You know, it's funny when I tell people that I work for Chrissy's Auction House because if you've never heard of it, that was how I was when I first started. So I'll tell you a little, a little bit about it. I, I essentially in college was reading an article in Vanity Fair magazine. And if you were alive or, or if you're of the age where you might remember this, there was an article about Princess Diana selling her dresses to benefit a charity. And this mm-hmm. was in 1997. 
And I read this article in Vanity Fair magazine, and I thought it was just the most incredible thing that I had ever read in my life. It was all about this auction house. And all, all of these people in New York were dressed in black tie, and they'd gone to this auction house for the sale of Princess Diana's dresses, and all of the money was going towards charity. And it completely captivated me. I captured my imagination, and I thought to myself, I have to work for this place, Christie's Auction House. You know, I grew up in a small town in Louisiana. My parents were not art collectors, but this was just something that I was laser focused on. And so I told everyone I met for the entire time I was in college, anyone who would listen, that I was going to work for Christie's Auction House. And I often say that it's so important in life to put goals out there, to put ideas and dreams out there, because the more people who hear them, the more people can help you. And I mentioned this to my father, who has never met a stranger in his life. And in Louisiana, one night at a party, months later, maybe even a year later, he pulled over a young woman who had just started working in New York City at Christie's Auction House. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment that really changed my adult life because I got the internship coordinator's information from her. I called Christie's Auction House ready for you know, that internship that I was going to get, only to be told that there were no internships available. They had completely sold out. And I ended up calling her for two straight weeks until she finally relented. And I was able to get an internship there in college. And that was really where it all started for me. You know, I, I dove headfirst into the auction world right after college. Um, I secured a full-time job about two months after I arrived after college. And it was such a dream world for me. It was everything I had read in that article and more. And since that time, I not only I ran the events department throughout my 20s, I started a new department for the company in my 30s and have done that for now 11 years. And then on top of that, I've been a charity auctioneer, which is the greatest joy of my life. It's such a passion for me. I get to stand on stage at galas in New York City and raise money for nonprofits around the city and around the world. So that's really who I am. The book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, sort of came as a result of all of these experiences because I wanted to pass them along to other women who wanted to do something outside of what they saw in their hometown or what they saw as their life goal. I wanted to sort of shake up and tell them that having confidence and feeling powerful is so integral to you living the life that you want to live. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah. And, and it's such an interesting story, how you were so to me that you were so focused from that point on knowing what you wanted to do. Now I have to ask because, uh, and you, I know you talk about this in the book, but maybe not everybody knows what a, a charity auctioneer is. Uh, a lot of us, when we think of auctioneers, we think of that guy that's talking real fast and kind of with the, the rhythm and stuff. And I get the sense and from, you know, reading your book that that's not quite the way you operate. No, it's funny. I always say there are two questions when I tell people I'm an auctioneer. The first one is, do you talk really fast? And I say, I do speak very quickly. However, I'm not selling cattle. You know, I'm not a livestock auctioneer, so I don't have to have that quick cadence that you might've seen on TV. And the second question is always, what's the most expensive piece of art you've ever sold at an auction? Um, because if you work for Christie's Auction House in the sort of mainstream media, you might see a, you know, we sold a Da Vinci for a half a billion dollars a couple of years ago, or even last week we sold a piece of digital art for the first time, $69 million, and it was on the Today Show. You know, those are the headlines that catch the imagination of anyone who's ever heard of an auction house or had ever even thought about an auction house. But there's a different element to auctioneering, which is 
the charity auctioneering. What that means is that if you think about a group of people who've decided that they want to raise money for an organization, they put together in New York City and, and frankly, in towns all over the all over the country and, and all over the world, they put together an event, you know, a, a dinner or a party or whatever it might be to sort of get all of those people in the room. And then my job is to come on stage with a couple of things that people have donated to the auction. So let's say a trip or piece of artwork, or in some cases, a puppy. I mean, I really have sold anything and everything. But I get on stage and I use all of these different skills that I had learned from being on stage for 16 years over hundreds and hundreds of auctions to whip the audience into a fun frenzy that makes them bid against one another and ultimately raises money for the charity. So, you know, it's just this really interesting dynamic moment during the night. And my job is to control the crowd, to get them to give me as much as they can while still having fun. And ultimately it all goes towards charity. So it has a great feel good moment every single time I'm finished. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. And I really enjoyed reading in your book, some of the stories about uh, some of the things you've auctioned off and, and kind of the way that all works. I want to talk a little bit about the book because the things you talk about in this book are really why I wanted to ask you to be my guest on the show and talk about those things. So you mentioned it already. I've mentioned it. You you've written this wonderful book called the most powerful woman in the room is you. Uh, and you, you've kind of touched on this, but what actually inspired you to write that particular book? What, what are you, what were you trying to get across in writing that book? Every single time that I get on stage as an auctioneer, and this goes back as, as long as I can remember, there's a woman who comes up to me either before or after the auction to tell me how they could never do what I just did. And it's some amalgamate, amalgamation of a number of different sentences, something along the lines, I could never do that. I hate selling. I hate putting myself out there. I can never ask anyone for anything. And it's just this sort of ongoing dialogue, woman after woman, cities around the world. And I heard it so many times. And I, when I looked at the women who were saying this to me, I would think to myself, I didn't have this and I learned it, which means that I can teach it. Mm. And that's why I wrote the book. It was to fill that need. It was to give women the tools that I have spent the past 16 years honing to be able to get up in front of people and ask for something, to be able to sell an idea or a product for themselves to other people and to feel confident doing it. I think you really accomplished that in the book. And so uh, I'd like to dig into some of those, the things that I took away from reading the book, uh, which I found really, really interesting. A lot of the book relates to, I mean, you talk about sort of selling things or selling yourself, but also a lot of it relates to leadership in a broad sense. And, and one of the themes that you have come, you come back to throughout the book in various ways is this concept of inspiring others and leading by example. And part of what you do, I think, as a charity auctioneer is to inspire the people in the room to get, uh, to give, to, to get involved in, in the project and the cause that you're there for. Why though, is it important to talk about that, about inspiring others, about leading by example? How does it apply to women who maybe don't think of themselves as being in a leadership position? 
I love that question. Just taking it back to the auction room. You know, I, I talk about this in the book. There's a point during the night where I get on stage. And if you think about what I'm selling in these auctions, a lot of times it's going to go for a lot more than most people in the room have. And so when I first started taking auctions, I always thought to myself, okay, I just have to really focus on the top bidders, right? I have to think about those top bidders and I really have to make sure that they want to bid. And what I realized that during the entire auction, if I only focused on the top bidders, everyone else in the room just talked and they didn't pay attention because they didn't feel like they were part of it. So they didn't really support, they didn't really care. And frankly, it was difficult for me because I had to almost drown them out with my voice, but they were trying to do the same thing to me, which made it a very loud auction room. Mm. But what I realized is if I got on stage and I started addressing the entire room and I tried to bring the entire room along for this auction moment, for this incredible fundraising moment. And if I gave as much congratulatory speech to the person who gave me the top bid as I did to the person who gave me $100 in the paddle raise or $10 at the very end of the night during the fund to need, that instead of everybody turning their chairs and talking to one another, they would get together and support the cause. And that's really what I think leadership is. And that is what I think is so important for women because, you know, I grew up in an era where women did not really support women. I mean, the women who were at the top of my company, I think there was one woman and she wasn't even in the C-suite. She was just sort of a senior executive and she wasn't nice because frankly, she was clawing her way to the top because that was the only position that was available. And I think she felt like she had a target on her back always because of the way that she had reached that leadership position. And, you know, I've worked at Christie's for 20 years. I've had so many teams of women over the years. And the one thing I learned very early on was that if I took all the credit for everything and I used my personality to drive everything forward and left everyone behind in, in sort of seeking that A plus or that gold star, if things went wrong, then I was the target. Mm. Whereas if I surrounded myself with people and built them up alongside me and supported their ideas and their initiatives and what they wanted, at the end of the day, if I was a leader and something went wrong, they circled wagons. And it was such a life lesson for me because I've surrounded myself with the most incredible women and I support them and they support me. And it is such a fulfilling way to do it. It's such a great way to live life, to want other people to succeed and realize it doesn't take anything away from you. It's additive. And that is such a huge message in my book because I've lived that, especially for the last decade. And it's such a wonderful thing to see. And I feel like the conversation has shifted and we hear this time and time again, but it is true. And anyone who's listening out there, I hope that this is something that you focus on because it changes your life. It changes your outlook in life. Yeah, I agree. And and that really is true, whether you are someone who's in an executive office or you're, you know, involved in the PTA at your children's school, anywhere, th- that concept that you just described is going to be applicable. Yes, absolutely. And it's just more fun. I mean, honestly, I can't tell you how many times I've thought to myself, in a moment of success, how sad to be by yourself, right? Mm-hmm. As you said, if you are the head of the PTA and you have planned everything for the whole year and you've involved no one, that's a lonely party sitting with a glass of wine by yourself at the end of the day. Whereas if you've empowered everybody to really lift them up and succeed in what they're doing, all of a sudden you're surrounded by people who are celebrating with you. And that's such a great feeling. Yeah, absolutely. 
Lydia, one of the topics in the book that I really resonated with um, and found really enlightening was the subject of negotiating for what you're worth. And I think this really spoke to me because this is something that's difficult for me personally. I, as a lawyer, I, I can go to the wall for my clients, but when it comes to advocating for myself, whether money or anything else, I really struggle. And and you you address this in your book. And I guess what I want to ask you as a starting point is for, for somebody like me, women like me, what's in the way? What's, what's holding us back from speaking up for ourselves and negotiating for what we're worth? Oh, Laura, I, I think every single Q&A that I do after any speaking engagement, this is a question. And I feel like every woman at some point asks me, a variation of something where I usually use the same answer, which is no one gives you a permission slip in life. And I'll get, you know, could I email that person back? Should I ask for more? What is going to happen if you do? And this is what is such an interesting part about women. We all, for some reason, feel that there is a set of rules, an unclear set of rules that we all have to follow in our lives. And that includes not asking for things, not asking too much for things, not putting ourselves out there. And the bottom line is nobody in life succeeds by not asking for more. You know, I told that story in my book because for 10 years, I worked for a company that I absolutely loved. I thought of them as my family. They treated me like their family. And yet I find out 10 years in that I'm making a third of what I should be making. A third, not a half, a third. It was such an awful moment in my life because I felt so silly. I felt so stupid for all those years, never asking for more, never pushing for more. And I realized that I hadn't even, I don't think I even asked for a raise for the first eight years that I worked there. I mean, it was not okay. And the bottom line is, what I learned in that, in that moment was that I hadn't asked and therefore I hadn't received anything. So I say to people, when it comes to negotiation, you have to start asking for things that you know, you're not going to get. You have to learn how to steal yourself against the word no. And you also have to remember that no does not mean no forever. No means no in that moment. Perhaps mm. you know, if you're trying to sell something or you're trying to negotiate something that doesn't work out, it's not a flat rejection. You can go back in a month and ask the same question and you may have a completely different answer. So whenever I say to people, if you think about negotiation, you're walking in for you're asking for that big number, ask for more. Because the bottom line is you will never know how much is out there unless you throw out a big number. And if somebody comes back at half, ask again. You don't have to do it in an aggressive way. It can be a conversation, just like the conversation we're having now. You know, I would like X. Well, we can't give you X. We can give you this. Well, that sounds great. How about a little bit more, right? Mm -hmm. Everything should always be a little bit more. And I think when you phrase it like that, as opposed to black and white, think about all the shades of gray that are in a negotiation. And don't ever walk out of a negotiation having not explored those shades of gray. Mm. Why does it matter that we negotiate for what we're worth? What from, from your perspective, what's the big deal? Well, two things. First of all, if you never ask for anything, you will never get anything. You know, my father has always said since I was a little girl, Lydia, you are what you negotiate and not a penny more. And the problem is if you never ask the first time, first of all, you're not used to asking, but then you stop asking altogether. It's not just what you don't get that one time. You know, if you're thinking about a salary negotiation, 
I mean, think about not only did I not get what I asked for eight years into my career, I wasn't asking for eight years, which means that every single year I was leaving money on the table, right? Mm -hmm. Every single year. And that compounded by eight years, that same amount of money would have grown so much. And it didn't because I didn't ask. And, you know, if you really think back, if you think over a decade long career, having never asked for a raise, you can imagine what my salary looked like compared to somebody who had asked or somebody who'd come in from a different company and asked for a lot more. And there are such a higher level and higher playing field that I can't even access anymore because I've never asked to get to even the lowest common denominator in those sort of budget and and all the salary negotiations. So, you know, it's really twofold. It's like, first of all, you're not asking. So you're, you're not negotiating on behalf of yourself. So that in itself is not a great thing. But on top of that, every single time you don't do it, you're leaving money on the table that over time would grow exponentially. And what's interesting to me as I think about this for me, I, I'm one of those women that you talked about earlier that has a real problem with selling. Like, like I said, I can negotiate for my clients. I don't have a problem with that at all. Uh, But for myself, it's difficult. And I think part of the issue for me is I think the story I tell myself about what it means when they say no, I can look all the way back to when I was a little girl. I was, um, I was a campfire girl and you know, the girl scouts sell cookies, campfire girls sold mints. And back in those days, we would go door to door to sell them in our neighborhood and stuff. And I hated doing it because when they said no, I was embarrassed. Yeah. Um, And I got to where I would take my younger sister with me because I found out she was really good at it. If they said no, she'd say, well, why not? They're good. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, that has carried on through my life. When I ask for something for myself and and somebody says no, I feel embarrassed for having asked. So what's the answer for that? I think you have to think about sales differently. Mm. Sales are not personal, right? It's business at the end of the day. And so if you're approaching it in a personal way, which by the way, Laura, you are not alone. I've had this conversation with more people than I can count. And the bottom line is when you are asking somebody to purchase something, whether it be a box of cookies or an idea or a product that you've made or you know a service that you provide, at the end of the day, it is a gift. Sales is a gift because if somebody wants it, on the other side, it is fulfilling a need that they don't have. So I always look at anything I'm offering to someone. You know, if I'm offering someone the opportunity to come to a masterclass and I'm you know, talking about sales or negotiations, I see this service as being something that will ultimately help them or bring joy into their lives. And so I think when it comes to the rejection piece, what you have to understand is if they don't get it, if they don't want it at that moment, like they didn't want those box of cookies, The flip side of that is, let's think about why they didn't want the box of cookies. One, maybe they couldn't afford it at that time. Two, maybe they're on a diet and they don't want cookies. Three, maybe they just don't like cookies. (laughs) What if that has anything to do with you? None, right? You didn't come to the door and they thought to themselves, oh, I don't like that girl. I'm not going to buy her cookies. That is, (laughs) that never happens, right? And so in sales, in many cases, it's exactly the same thing. You know, I remember having a conversation with, I was doing a a coaching class, a sales coaching class for Armani. And I was talking to them about this time after the pandemic. And they were talking about, you know, 
going into to homes and selling items of clothing. How could they do this right now um, when the world had changed overnight? Because obviously nobody was going to want anything they were selling. And I said, you know, I remember when I was pregnant with my first child, the two things that I always bought when I was pregnant, shoes and earrings, right? Because <laughs> your ears don't change and your shoe size might change a little bit. It hopefully will go back at the end of the day. And I said, but you need to go into the conversation understanding that they may not feel comfortable in their skin right now. So this has nothing to do with you. This has to do with the fact that they don't want to buy anything right now because they want their body to go back. So let's think about the fact that those shoes and earrings might work very well for now and lead with that. So I think the other part is just understanding that it is not personal. It is really about where that person is in their journey and whether or not what you are selling fits into that journey at that time. Yeah. And that's such an important thing to remind yourself for somebody like me, I, I have to remind myself frequently of those things that it's not, you know, it's not something I should be embarrassed for having asked. There are lots of reasons why the no may have come and none of them relate to my value as a human being. No, it's true. I actually, after one of my book, my book signings very early on, this woman stood up during the Q and A and she said, I don't have a question, but I do have a comment. I worked at a call center when I was in my 20s and I was rejected over 20 or 10,000 times, she said. And I like to think of myself as Teflon. And I remember mm -hmm. laughing out loud and saying, I think that is actually the greatest gift that anyone could be given because truly, what would you ask for if you just did not mind what the answer was. And we all steal ourselves against this conversation. Trust me, I go into salary negotiations and negotiations all the time with that sort of like, oh gosh, I have to ask for it. But you have to ask. And in sales, you have to sell your product because nobody will do it like you. So if you need to hear no 15 times to start getting over it and realize it's just a word and you will survive, start asking for things that you know you're not going to get. <laughs> I love that. That's a great, great advice. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because I was so intrigued in the book, you say this, you say, educating yourself about money, how to use it, how to spend it, how to make it, how to save it, how to make more of it is one of the most important things you can do in your life. I would love to know why you say that. Because my parents didn't educate me about money. And I feel like if they had spent more time telling me about it, then so many of the pitfalls that I had in my 20s would not have happened. And, you know, it wouldn't have taken me until the age of 30 to understand how little I was making in my career. And I also would have understood what a credit card was. I mean, there were so many very small things that if I had learned earlier in my life, again, thinking about how money compounds over time, if invested, you know, all of these things. I just didn't know and I wasn't aware of. And so when I found out about it, I felt like I needed to shout it from the rooftop so that women everywhere would understand. And I really believe that at any age, you know, if you are someone who is in their 70s, if you are someone who is in their teens, money makes the world go around. So you have to figure out how you're going to make it or what you're going to do with it or understand what role it will play in your life so that you're not constantly looking around so thinking to yourself, how are all these people doing this? How are they living this life? How are they going on this trip? How are they saving? How is all of this happening? Because once you understand how it works, it is a completely different life that you set up for yourself. You know, I talk in the book about having a conversation with one of my husband's really good guy friends about the fact that his dad sat him down when he was in high school because I think he was, you know, just sort of 
not really doing what he was supposed to be doing. He wasn't getting good grades. And his, his father sat him down and he said, or excuse me, his mother sat him down and said, you know what, Rob, you need to get good grades in high school because you need to go to a good college. And you need to go to a good college because I want you to go to a good business school. And you need to do all of this because you need to provide for your family. And if you want to provide the kind of life that you've had, it costs money. And in order to do that, you have to understand that all of this starts now. And I could not tell you one of my girlfriends who had a conversation anywhere near like that with their parents. I mean, truly, whereas when I, I've recounted this story many times to my friends and a lot of my guy friends were like, oh yeah, I remember having a conversation like that with my parents. They were like, no, 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 you need to get, to, you have to go to a good college because that's how you're going to set yourself up for life. Like, that is how you're going to make sure that you can take care of your family. And I feel like if women had that same direction and they understood in the same way, we would look at ourselves and think the world is my oyster, right? Mm -hmm. I too can do all of these things. I can set up myself up in life. I know exactly where my finances are and therefore I can do whatever I want. And so I think having that conversation is so important and I know it can be intimidating, but you know, I started with Susie Orman. That was really where that was really where my education about money started. So it can be done. It is mass. It is easy to understand. Just find some find a way that money or a, a woman in money columnist speaks to you, and just start reading. Yeah, I, I think that's so interesting because, and there's so much truth in what you're saying there. You know. And it's true whether you want to, uh, you know, your objectives in life are to have a job that pays, you know, six or seven figures a year and do all sorts of things that, that are very expensive. Or if you want to have a, a quieter life in a small town and, you know, I don't know, raise, you know, raise your children and raise chickens or something, wherever you want to be, it's one thing to say, oh, the best things in life are free, but our ability to enjoy those free best things in life really is affected by the decisions that are made about money and whether we're making them for ourselves or we're just sort of going through life, taking what comes at us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I had a conversation a couple of days ago with a young woman. There's this campaign right now called the Two Million Mentor Minutes that mm -hmm. a lot of my friends have been participating in. And I basically put it out up on Instagram and, you know, tell me anyone who would like a mentor, come to me and I'll pick a couple of you who I can help, who I feel like I can give advice and guidance to. And I spoke to this woman and it was just such an amazing conversation. She was so honest about what was going on. She's a mother of three children. She lives in the South. And her husband has really been struggling with mental illness for the past couple of years. And to the point where he can't really work anymore. And you can tell she's a self-starter. She had worked before he, I guess really they even met. And here she is in a situation where she is now the sole income breadwinner for their family. And they'd created a lovely life, sort of both working. And then he stepped out of his job indefinitely. And now she's saying she doesn't really think that he will go back to work. And she's realizing that the onus is on her. Mm -hmm. And that to me is a perfect example of why we educate ourselves about money. Because even if you choose in your relationship, one of you will be the CEO of your home and one of you will be the CEO of their business or however that might look, you don't know what's going to happen in life. And yeah. you don't want to be the person who, if something does happen, like exactly like this woman was telling me earlier about her husband, and she at that point was, she'd been at home for many years after leaving work, all of a sudden she's thrust into this role that she doesn't really 
doesn't really understand and she, she isn't comfortable talking about money and she doesn't know what investing is or how she's supposed to save and all of these things. And so just educating yourself about that gives you the ability, if something like that happens in your life, just still be in control and to be able to, again, live the life that you want because you are not in a situation that you can't have control over. Yeah. I, educating ourselves about this and just as in so many things is so important. I always say I used to teach childbirth classes and I would offer lots of information to the, the couples that came to my classes. And the reason I told them is I'm not telling you what to choose, how to, how to give birth, but if you don't know what your options are, you don't have any. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And what a terrible feeling that is. Yeah. So I, I love that. Um, I want to talk, uh, kind of switch gears a little bit because this is another thing you talked about in the book that was so interesting to me. Several times in the book, you talk about the importance of networking. You yeah. use the phrase network or die. Network or die. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you mean by networking? Why is it so important? And, and how do we start for those of us who, you know, didn't kind of grow up with that idea of, of networking? Well, network or die is my father's phrase that he has always said about business. If you don't network, your business dies because the bottom line is you can't just have the same clients forever. And so I've always heard the phrase network or die and it always makes me laugh because it reminds me of my father who loves nothing more than to walk into a room with a thousand people who he's never met before. That is his idea of heaven. And I think for most people, that is not their idea of heaven. So, I, yeah, I'm raising my hand there. That's my idea of misery. <laughs> but I do think that the really, the, the point of my chapter about networking is to talk about the fact that first of all, it's free, which nothing in life is free, but networking truly is. And because of social media and this day and age, the ability to reach out to anybody at any given time, anywhere in the world, in any business capacity, it is insane to me that people do not constantly open their network to other people. And they are not constantly spending time building and growing their network, especially if they are in business. I think that networks I, mean, I, I truly believe networking is something you do every hour of every day. You know, you should be doing it on the personal level with the people that you meet. And on a professional level, you should just be constantly looking to make connections with other people because that's what networking is. It doesn't have to be done within your particular industry. For instance, I mean, you're a lawyer, right? So people would be like, oh, well, if, you're, if I'm a lawyer, maybe I should only network with other lawyers. In fact, no, you can network with anyone in the entire world and in some ways, they will probably benefit you just as much as being in a room of other lawyers because people bring different ideas, different diversity of ideas and diversity of information. And all of those things help people think through different approaches, different moments in their life that they find tricky or, you know, having an issue that they can't resolve. Having networks of people who have different ideas and different thought processes helps not only you solve a problem, but then it also helps you learn more about other ways of thinking. And also in a business, it helps you grow your business because the person who you're networking with also has a network of people. So it's almost like a spider web. You know, Laura, I've met you. Laura, I look through your LinkedIn profile or I look through any of your documents showing who you know and what you're doing. I can always as now as part of my network and part of your network, come back to you and say, you know, Laura, I know that you know so-and-so. Would you ever feel comfortable 
making an introduction for me or would you feel comfortable providing me with their information so that I can reach out directly? You know, I say on LinkedIn, people think, oh, I have 500 connections. No, you don't have 500 connections. You have 500 connections and every single connection has a network of their own. So you probably have more like 10,000 connections. And that's really the way that I see networking. It's a moment to meet people, to find that connected point, and then to figure out how you can either work together or on a personal level, just get to know someone a little better and learn a different story. And so when I think of networking, maybe it's just because of some of the, you know, I've been a lawyer for a while now, and I've gone through lots of sort of business development trainings and, and events and things like that. And so when I think of networking, I kind of cringe because I think of, you know, going to some cocktail hour where everybody you meet is, you know, handing, has their business card in their hand when they reach out to shake your hand and they're, everybody's looking for what you can do for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, that does not appeal to me on any yeah. level. No. So, so how, how is what you, the way you approach networking and the way you think of it, how is it different from that of uh, looking at, at a room full of people and thinking, what can you eat, do for me? Well, I don't approach networking through that lens. You know, if I walk into a room of people that I don't know, the last thing I'm going to talk to them about is business because I want to know who they are. I want to understand mm-hmm. what's going on in their life. I don't think there's ever been in our entire lifetime a time like right now where you can find a point of connectivity with anyone in the world. We have all gone through a seismic shift over the past year. And if I were to go into a cocktail party right now, which in New York City we're not doing, (laughs) give us a couple of months, I think we'll be there. Um, But if I were to go into a crowded room right now and I didn't know anyone, my my first thing to do would be to go stand at the bar and wait until someone walked up next to me to get a drink. And as their drink was being poured, I would probably turn to them and say something like, you know, I love, Laura, I love in this picture that I'm looking at of you right now. I love your red dress. I love the color red. It's such a wonderful color. I wrote a book and the cover was red. That's how much I loved it. And I'm wondering, since you have a red dress, you must be a woman who loves to talk about powerful topics. So I'd love to hear a little bit about you, Laura. And all of a sudden you're standing at the bar and we're having a conversation. And after we finished having that conversation, I may know who you are, where you're from, what you did during COVID. But then in addition to that, you might also mention that you were a lawyer because it came up organically. And now that I know all this other stuff about you, I can actually use that information to introduce you to other people in the room. And once you sort of think of a room like that, where you are continually the person who's connecting and making those connections happen, whether or not it impacts you whatsoever, you start making connections even if you didn't mean to. Because all of a sudden, you're the convener of all of these people. Well, how do you know this person? Oh, I met her through Laura. How do you know Laura? I met her at bar. It's such an interesting thing to network without any, without any goal in mind. Just to truly get to know people. And then at the end of the time, find out what they do for work as a side product. And that's really, to me, what networking is about. Because it's all about that point of connectivity. And once you connect with someone on a personal level, the networking part of it, the business part of it, comes from there. Yeah. Do you have any, on a, on a really practical level, do you have any 
uh, system in place or for keeping track of the thing, the people you meet and the things you learn about them. I mean, one of, one of my things that I've struggled with my entire adult life is remembering names and putting, you know, I can like remember faces and think, Oh, that's the one they've got two kids and that guy rides horses or whatever. But do you have a, a, a kind of a mechanism for keeping track of that kind of information? So it's I available mean- to you when you need it. I am honestly, Laura, I am exactly like you and it's amplified because I get on stage in front of 500 people and I identify people by what they're wearing or by, you know, glasses or something in order to keep track of them. And so when I get off stage, they think that I know them and nine times out of 10, you know, it's bright light and all I can see glasses and that person becomes Tina Fey of the moment, but I can't remember anything past that once I get off stage. So I'm very good at the, when someone comes up and says, Hi, reading the facial facial cues that allow me to see that they clearly think that we know one another, whether or not I believe that or not, or whether or not I know that to be true is a completely different story, but to match their enthusiasm. That's always my first trick when it comes to seeing someone or meeting someone. Um, But on a practical level, I mean, I have a notebook that is always with me of people Mm -hmm. that I meet. And one or two details about them that I will bring up the next time I see them. And I say that, you know, in Zoom right now, it's so easy because in my notebook, if we had a, if we had a call three weeks ago and you mentioned one thing on that call, I would put it underneath your name. And the next time I get onto that call, I flip back to my notes. I see that information. And the first thing I do is ask you about what you told me. You know, I, I remember talking to someone about this recently and she was saying that she'd been on the phone call with a gentleman her son came running into the room and he's like three years old. And the gentleman on the other line said, or on the other side of the Zoom said, oh my gosh, how old is your son? I have a grandson the same age. And she wrote it down because we were, she was in one of my master classes. She wrote it down in her notebook. And then she said she had a follow-up call with him two weeks later. And she said something about his grandson. And she said she couldn't believe the look on his face. He said, my grandson. And she said, don't you remember the last time we talked about it? Because you mentioned, because my son ran in the room. And he said, I cannot believe that you remembered that. (laughs) And I promise you when it comes to networking, it's those little things that make people feel connected to you. And in a time where we're still on Zoom, and even as life goes back to normal, I think there will be Zoom, it allows you to actually write that information down and keep it in notebook where you can always access it. That's a great idea. The The one thing that I do, or one, one thing that I've done for years is, when someone I work with, whether it's a colleague or a client or, you know, people I meet, if they mention something like a birthday, either their birthday or their child's birthday, I will put it in my digital calendar as a recurring thing. So next year I can send them a note. Hey, happy birthday. I know you just had a baby last year. Your baby's a year old or something like that. And it's, I'm, you know, for me, it's not manipulative. There's, there's no intention of being manipulative in any way. I just, I like remembering things like that about people because important dates are important. (laughs) Absolutely. I actually have a friend too, who has a great networking tip that she shared with me recently that Anytime she's speaking to somebody about something and, you know, they, let's talk about, I'll I'll just say because the art world, you know, we just sold this big piece of digital art at Christie's and she was expressing a lot of enthusiasm for learning more about it. And I sent her an article on it, just over text, Mm -hmm. just remember we spoke about this, wanted, wanted you to see this. And she is a master at that. She does it all the time. 
if she had a conversation with someone about something, she reads an article, she sees something on the news, she'll just quickly find it and ping it over to them. And that is a great way to network because again, you're not asking for anything. You're just kind of remaining in their thoughts because there's nothing quite like the power of suggestion for making things happen. And I'm sure, you know, you've seen this in your own life where you have a conversation with somebody and then you just happen in the same day to have a conversation with someone else. And the one person expresses a need for something and the other person has that. And so mm-hmm. you connect them. They call it super connecting. It's a new, it's a new term I've heard. Um, yeah. It does nothing for you, but you're putting these two people in touch because they both mentioned it. So that to me is really what networking is about. Sort of putting out your ask to everyone around you, talking to as many people as possible and just keeping your name in the mix as much as possible. Yeah. I love that. Watching the clock, I want to be respectful of your time, but there are so many uh, interesting things that you talk about in the book that I'd love to get with you. Maybe we could just kind of narrow it down a little bit here. Uh, I'm certainly going to put a link to the book in the show notes and encourage people to read it. But again, the book is The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. What are maybe the two or three things you'd tell us to focus on to be the most powerful woman in the room, whatever room we might happen to be in. So I think the three things I would tell you are first, if you are trying to be in a place where you are selling something, if you are trying to sell yourself or an idea or a product, use your own words, sell authentically. Don't try to be somebody that you're not. And I learned this on stage trying to be an older British gentleman, which was what I had seen when I first (laughs) arrived at Christie's. I was by far the youngest auctioneer they had. I was one of the only women. And I always tried to do exactly what I had been taught, which was act very stiff and formal, like our art auctioneers. And about 10 years into taking auctions, I realized that it was actually more impactful if I got on stage and used my own sense of humor or my own voice to make these auctions feel fun for the audience. And I really changed my style. And with that, changed the auctioneering style of all the auctioneers for Christie's who are going to charity auctions because I now teach the charity auctioneering program. So I would say to anybody out there right now who's trying to figure out how to sell something when they go into a room and they feel like they have to be hard charging or they feel like they have to be very formal. Think about what makes you comfortable. Think about, you know, that smile that you give to a friend when you walk into the room. And instead of looking at someone across the table from you as an intimidating person, or you're selling that box of cookies and the door opens and your stomach Mm -hmm. turns because you think they're going to reject you. Think about it as a conversation and sell authentically. Uh, the, the next thing I would say, and we definitely covered this, was network or die. For mm-hmm. every single person out there, if you could spend an hour of your week every week for the rest of this entire year reaching out to people that you have never met before to increase your personal life or your business life, that will never fail for you. You can do it over LinkedIn. You can do it over Instagram. Find something that feels comfortable to you, but network and never mm-hmm. stop networking. I promise it pays off in spades. And then finally, as we talked about at the beginning, lift up those around you. This has been an incredibly tough year. People have been hit on every single level, whether it be family, financial, just even in in terms of mental health. Be kind to those around you and help those around you as much as you can, especially until we get back into a world where things seem a little more normal. Mm. And 
And I got to say, Lydia, those are not necessarily the things I would have thought you'd say about being the most powerful woman in the room. But I love that, especially that last one, that the, a powerful wo woman is not necessarily the one that's, you know, bringing the hammer down on everybody's heads, but the one who's lifting up the people around them. Yeah, there's power in numbers. People forget that being the only mm -hmm. person doesn't make you powerful. I love that. Uh, a couple of things real quick before I let you go. As as I told you, um, this conversation is part of a new productive living series that uh, we're doing on the podcast this year. And those who've listened to the, to the Productive Woman podcast for very long know that we talk about productivity as more than just getting stuff done. It's It goes beyond that. That's part of it, certainly. But in the sense of making a life that matters as you define it, what does it mean to you to make a life that matters? I just want at the end of my life to look back and think that I have passed along information to people that I learned that is going to be helpful to them. You know, at this point in my life, I'm in my early 40s. And I think the first 21 years of my life was me learning from other people. The next 20 years of my life was me sort of developing my own ideas. And now in my 40s, it's about passing that, that information back to other people so that hopefully it will help them navigate pitfalls that I, saw, I didn't see, but I learned how to get through. So living a productive life to me is really in service of others, you know, lifting other people up, but also living my dreams at the same time. And I think those two things together make me feel like I'm living the life that I want to live. I love that. Um, and I have to ask you a question because I've asked this question of every guest who's ever been on this podcast. I know you, you are a very productive person. You have a lot of things going on. We haven't talked about this, but you talk about it in the book about that. You're, you know, you have a family, you have three kids, you're doing those things there. You have a career working with Christie's and you sometimes, you know, do your work during the day and deal with your kids and then go out and take an auction. And so you obviously have systems and tools in place that help you manage all that and, and stay on track and get the things done that are important to you. But even with all that, do you ever have a day when it all gets away from you or you just get completely stressed out and overwhelmed? And if so, what do you do to get back on track? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Don't we all? I, I hope so. Um, I do. I absolutely have those days, but I learned to not let those days get away from me. And instead of thinking about them that as a day where I'm totally overwhelmed, I try to think about it in a segment of time. I've mm -hmm. told this story a million times of having one of those mornings that you've just described, you know, driving to get my kids on the subway and we forget the umbrellas and we go back and we come back and it's pouring with rain. And you know I'm late for a meeting and as everything is happening over the course of the morning, it's getting later and later and later. And I'm realizing that I'm not going to make this meeting. And I run through the subway platform in sort of sleety, slowing, snowy New York. And I see the train that I'm, I'm supposed to be getting down the stairs. And I do what you should never do on a subway like anywhere in New York City, run. I started running and I slipped and fell. Mm. And I literally slid on my hands and knees, ripped my pantyhose. My bag went flying into the sort of like muck on the ground. I gather everything up. I've been soaked outside because of all the rain. And I run down the stairs to try to get the subway car and the doors close in front of me. And I caught a reflection of myself in the mirror of that, of that door. And I looked so angry and so 
upset. And I just had this thought, you know, I could literally wreck everyone's day around me right now with this anger and this rage. Like I could ruin everyone's day. You know, in New York, it's easy. Shove someone on the subway. You can be angry as as much as you want in New York. I could go into work and be a horrible boss to everyone because of where I am in this day. Or I could just stand here and think about the fact that there are things to be grateful for in this life and not go down that path. And so I do that all the time in my life. I'm arguing with my kids, all three kids, and I find that I'm being very short with them. Pause for a second, Lydia, and think to yourself whether or not all three children could be having a bad day at exactly the same time, or maybe you're the one who's doing this. So that to me has been a really helpful tool in terms of just mindset, always going back to what is really going on here? Is the universe against you right now? Probably not. Just a bunch of things didn't go your way. That's okay. In the larger life, everything's going to be fine. And trying to keep that thread, even during COVID, even during this past year, when things were going sideways, waking up and thinking, this is not going to be a bad day. I can have a bad hour. I can have bad two hours. But I don't need to wreck this day just because of things that are going on. Some things I can control, some things I can't. So let's focus on the things I can control. Good advice for all of us. <laughs> Lydia, where can people connect you with you online? If, if they want to learn more about what you're doing or maybe have a question for you, where's the best place for them to find you? So I'm always on Instagram. I love Instagram. I do a lot on there. You can kind of follow along my life in New York, but also the auctions. And I love to, to talk about the nonprofits that I'm working with there on this as well. I have a website. LydiaFinette.com. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I own my, my screen name is the same everywhere. It's Lydia Finette. So you can always find me and I hope you will. Excellent. Uh, before we go, many, uh, maybe most of the women who listen to the Productive Woman podcast are looking for a little help, maybe a little encouragement in getting the things done that are important to them and, and making a life that matters as they define it. Thinking about how leadership and, and the other things we've talked about today fit into that objective, do you have any last words for, for the woman who might be listening and just looking for a little, little advice, little encouragement? I do. All I'm going to say is that we've made it through an incredibly tough year and we're still here. So whatever you are doing, wherever you are in the world right now, congratulations I hope that 2021 and the years to come will be years filled with confidence and power for you. You have it in you. You are the only person who can change the course of your life. So remember to own your power, to go out there with confidence and to live the life you want to live. Well said. Thank you so much, Lydia, for being with me today. My pleasure, Laura. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I really enjoyed talking with Lydia, and I am so thankful to her for taking the time to share her insight and encouragement. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if leadership is an interest of yours, I hope you'll check out her book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You, where you'll find lots more inspiration and ideas. But what do you think? Do you have any questions or comments about the things that Lydia and I discussed today? 
I would love to hear from you and I know she would as well. You can share your questions or thoughts in the comments section of the show notes for this episode, which you'll find at theproductivewoman.com slash 346. Or you can post a comment or question on the Productive Woman's Facebook page. If you prefer to share your thoughts with me privately, you can email your questions, comments, or suggestions to me at feedback at theproductivewoman.com or leave a voice message on the website or Facebook page. There is a, a little link on the right-hand side of the, of the website where you can click on that and uh, leave a voice message for me. Uh, I think that's it for this episode of The Productive Woman. Thank you so much for spending this time with me and with Lydia. I hope you felt like it was worthwhile and, and that you found something that inspired you or gave you a great idea for your own life. I'd love to hear from you if you did. And I look forward to talking with you again very soon. So until next time, remember, extend grace to each other and to yourself and go make your life matter.